Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, there's a little bit of uh, housekeeping to be done. A little exciting housekeeping. Yeah. We're going to go on tour again. Yay! Uh, We heard the folks who asked if we could come somewhere that didn't have the word coast as part of the name. And that's what we're doing. Yeah, so brace middle of the country for fall because we will be in Denver, Colorado, October 24th, Chicago, Illinois, October 25th, Austin, Texas, November 14th, Dallas, Texas, November 15th, and Houston, Texas, November 16th. So for our super fans who listen to this show as soon as it comes out, we have a pre-sale happening. The pre-sale is going to start on the 17th of July. The pre-sale password is Make History. And then if you're listening and it's after the 17th, don't worry. You can still get tickets. The tickets will be on sale to the general public on July 19th. Come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com. Click on live shows up at the top of the page to get uh, links to all of the places that you can buy tickets or go to mistinhistory.com slash tour. We are very excited to see everyone. Me too. I, you said we. I'm just going to be also me. I Maybe am part I of meant we. me, myself, and I. <laughs> <laughs> the royal we, which is a good way to transition into this episode because it's uh, about royals. <laughs> um, but outside the royals you often hear me talk about because they are my favorites, um, this is neither French royalty nor anything having to do with Queen Victoria, although there is some uh, French relations in the mix. And it's sort of a sad royal childhoods, mad monarchs combo in that both of those things are the case and there are two people involved. I know that I've been leaning a lot into French history, brace, because there <laughs> is more of that coming. In fact, I was already working instead for today on an episode that was related to Versailles when I discovered another book that I wanted for that episode, but I have to order that book. Uh, I have, and it is not here yet. So this episode is happening, and that episode will come later. Uh, but I have also been wanting to look at some other European countries because they have been a little neglected in my in my work. Uh, the early Bourbon rule in Spain is one that I find fascinating because it's often boiled boiled down to a little bit of a degree of sensationalism owing to the sexual appetites of some of the bourbons and how much people like to write about that. But of course, there's a whole lot more to the whole thing than that. And it is a very important family line uh, because bourbon descendants ruled in so many places, starting with the descendants of Louis IX of France and Margaret of Provence in the 1200s, right up into the modern era. But today we're just going to look at one little slice, and it is centered primarily around one couple that ruled Spain, Ferdinand and Barbara. They ruled from 1746 to 1759, and theirs is a partnership – at turns that is sweet and sorrowful, it is ultimately tragic. Both of them displayed behaviors that would undoubtedly be recognized today as likely mental health conditions or just in need of some mental health attention. Um, A heads up for anyone listening, there are some uh, brief discussions of attempted suicide in this episode. Uh, But one of the things that I find really interesting about them is that despite the fact that they ascended to power in a court that was filled with intrigue and they were pulled in two directions by those who had interest in Britain and others who had interest in France, which was a a big conflict that was playing out, Uh, Ferdinand turned out to be somewhat of a surprising ruler and to have a pretty prosperous reign, and that is in no small part due to his wife Barbara, so I thought it would be uh, fun to tell their story. Ferdinand VI was born on September 23rd, 1713. He was a bourbon. His 
parents were Philip V of Spain and Maria Luisa of Savoy. Then on his father's side, Ferdinand was also the great-grandson of King Louis XIV of France and his first wife, Maria Theresa of Spain. Philip V had taken the throne of Spain upon the death of King Charles II, who was also Maria Theresa's half-brother. It's all a little complicated. Because Philip V had grown up at Versailles, his court often contained a lot of nobles and advisors from outside of Spain, and that led to a lot of suspicion and intrigue and friction. And that also meant that Ferdinand was born into a fairly high-drama court and at the end of the War of the Spanish Succession, which was catalyzed by Charles II's death. So we're going to give you kind of the quick and dirty version of that conflict. Of course, it is much more drawn out and nuanced than what you're getting here because that is not the focus of this episode. But leading up to Charles II's death, the first Treaty of Partition was signed in 1698 to get in front of a potential conflict about who should succeed him. And per that agreement, Prince Joseph Ferdinand of Bavaria would inherit Spain, its colonies, and the Spanish Netherlands. The Italian interests of Spain, that was Milan, Naples, and Sicily, would be split between France and Austria. But Prince Joseph Ferdinand died when that treaty was just months old. So a new treaty had to be negotiated. Essentially, the treaty was the same. But instead of Prince Joseph Ferdinand, the Spanish throne was going to go to the Archduke Charles. He was the son of Holy Roman Emperor Leopold. But Leopold wanted his son to get everything. He didn't want these various holdings to be split up, so he refused to sign it. And then that was why Charles II named Philip V as his successor in his will, and then that set off a fresh round of disagreement and claimants to the throne. All that culminated in the conflict known as the War of Spanish Succession. Ferdinand was Philip and Maria Luisa's fourth-born son, although one of their previous children had died in infancy, so he was the third surviving child when he was born. And while he did survive, his mother, Maria Luisa, had some pretty serious health issues that were worsened by her fourth pregnancy and delivery. She died only five months after Ferdinand was born. Ferdinand was in a pretty unique position when he was a child. For one, Spain had lost some of its power at the conclusion of the War of Spanish Succession. The alliance between Spain and France had been weakened as the territories that had originally been planned for them to split were instead distributed among a wider field of world powers. Philip V retained his position as King of Spain, but he also lost a great deal, and the unification of Spain and France was abandoned. So he was a prince in a country that was kind of regrouping. As the third of Philip's sons from his first marriage, Ferdinand's brothers, Louis and Philip, were much more important to the monarchy. And when Philip married Elizabeth Farnese, Princess of Parma, after Maria Luisa's death, Elizabeth busied herself with her own children and even encouraged a rivalry between Ferdinand and her eldest son, particularly after the deaths of Louis and Philip, which left Ferdinand as Philip V's heir. Additionally, Philip had his own problems with mental health. He is often described as a sad, sober man who had very few pleasures in life, and his devotion to his first wife could be described as obsession and could be its own show. Uh, After she died, he was such a mess that everyone in the know was busy trying to find that second wife, Elizabeth, ASAP. (laughs) So Ferdinand was really an outsider. He had suddenly become important to the monarchy after spending his life thinking that one of his brothers would be the one leading the country. He'd also been treated really maliciously by his stepmother, so understandably, he had become an introverted and pretty anxious teenager in this very stressful royal household. 
1725, when Ferdinand was just 12, his father arranged for his marriage, though the actual wedding was planned for several years later when the prince and his intended were both a bit older. And that intended was Barbara of Braganza, who was 14 when this marriage was arranged. And this was actually part of a package deal arranged by Philip V and Portugal's King John V. In addition to the union of Ferdinand and Barbara, the deal was also brokered for the marriage of Barbara's brother Joseph to Ferdinand's sister Maria Anna Victoria. And this tightly aligned Spain with Portugal, which was kind of an effort to create a better relationship with Britain, which had very good relations with Portugal. 1725 was also the year that Ferdinand's second older brother died, and that made him the heir to the throne. So while he was just an awkward, shy kid, his life had two major shifts in one year, although the actual practical effects of those shifts wouldn't be felt for some time. And just as an aside, uh, Philip V had actually abdicated to his son Louis in 1724. There are two different schools of thought on this move. One suggests that he gave up the throne because his mental state had reached a point where he had neither the strength nor desire to continue. Uh, There were also lots of times where he kind of let Elizabeth run things. Uh, But the other school of thought is that in putting his son Louis on the throne, he could circumvent the Treaties of Utrecht, which had ended the War of Spanish Succession, and he could get around the terms that he agreed to within it, thus opening up a possible avenue to regaining some of Spain's lost territory. But his motivations mattered little in the end, because Louis died just seven months into his reign, and with Ferdinand still a child, Philip V once again became king. We're going to talk about Ferdinand's betrothed in just a moment, but first we will pause for a word from one of the sponsors that keeps our lights on. Maria Madalena Barbara Javier Leonor Teresa Antonia Josefa de Braganza, known more commonly as Barbara of Portugal uh, or Barbara of uh, Braganza, was the daughter of Portugal's King John V and Austria's Maria Antonia. She was born on December 4th, 1711. She was a really smart, well-educated girl. She was multilingual. I think I read somewhere she spoke six languages fluently. Uh, She was very spirited. She loved the arts, particularly music. She actually trained under the composer Scarlatti, and she could compose music as well as sing and play harpsichord. Barbara was not considered attractive, particularly by the standards of the Spanish court. And initially, Ferdinand's reaction to seeing her was allegedly kind of unkind and childish. But that quickly changed. Uh, And also, it's worth mentioning that similar to how we mentioned on our episode on Hatshepsut and the voyage to Punt, that the Queen of Punt is consistently described in kind of gross terms regarding her appearance, even in modern scholarly articles. The same can be said of most of the accounts of Barbara. They talk about her skin not being very pretty and her being uh, overweight, and it's just unkind. There are uh, some reports that Spain felt like Ferdinand was making this great sacrifice in marrying her. In January of 1729, the slightly older teenagers were finally married. They became prince and princess of Asturias in a festival-style series of events that included both of the marriages that had been agreed to back in 1725. The two weddings were conducted at a palace in the Spanish-Portuguese border that was built just for the occasion, and then another palace was built by the Portuguese monarch as sort of an overnight stopping point for the guests traveling back to Lisbon after the wedding gala was over. 
Definitely no expense spared on celebrating these two weddings. And as a married couple, Ferdinand and Barbara realized in pretty short order that they actually had a lot in common, in particular their love for music. And they seem to have very genuinely fallen in love. They were very devoted to each other for the rest of their lives. Unfortunately, they also shared some similar problems with anxiety and melancholy, which today might be categorized as some form of depression. As we've said many times, it's always a little bit tricky to try to retroactively uh, apply labels of mental health to people that lived in the past and we don't have a full sense of everything that was going on. Yeah, they're not here for anyone to examine. Right. Uh, And like his father, Ferdinand's mental health ran in cycles of melancholy and mania. And at times it seemed like he had very little confidence. There's a lot of discussion in any biography of him about both his wife and his advisor sort of constantly having to prop him up in terms of his confidence and be like, no, you can do it. He needed a lot of encouragement. Uh, He was a quiet man and very gentle for the most part, but he did have some pretty angry outbursts in his more manic periods. It really didn't help that the Spanish court looked on Ferdinand and Barbara with suspicion and distrust. This was because of the influence of Ferdinand's stepmother, Elizabeth Farnese, who wanted to keep both of them as far away from having any kind of influence as possible. The young couple were confined to their apartments a lot of the time, and then they would be trotted out for various big events. It's certainly possible that this isolation might have strengthened their bond to each other. Spain's relations with Portugal had hit rocky times despite this double marriage that was intended to smooth things out, and both Philip and Elizabeth seemed reluctant to trust Ferdinand and his Portuguese wife. This situation continued. Uh, There was a, a little sort of blip in it in 1732 when Philip had a particularly bad episode during which he refused to speak, except on occasion to his wife Elizabeth or to his son Ferdinand. And during this time, Ferdinand was put on a regency council, and he tried to encourage his father to once again assume his duties as king. And eventually, the son's efforts did have some effect. He was able to get his father to bathe and change clothes and start taking on his duties and being king once again. But it wasn't as though Philip was magically cured just from getting cleaned up, and he still had a lot of periods of deep melancholy that alternated with manic phases, although this did seem to get him over the hump of this particular episode. This was a particularly difficult period, and afterward, Philip remained on the throne for another 13 years. Spain did expand its military and land holdings under him, but it also fell into bankruptcy. At times, he'd spend long stretches of time in bed, and sometimes he would only get up at night to eat. Philip V died on July 9, 1746, after having a stroke. Ferdinand's coronation was August 10th. And initially, uh, Ferdinand's stepmother stayed in the Spanish court and made efforts to retain some level of influence. But before long, Barbara urged the new king to show Elizabeth Farnese the door. And to help bolster her cause, Barbara also allied herself with three men of the court who were very influential. That was Jose de Cavajal, the Marquis de Ensenada, and Fernando de Silva Alvarez de Toledo. And these men, while they all had their own political leanings and alliances with other countries, were united in wanting to rid the court of Spain of Elizabeth and her friends and their influence. So by July of 1747, Elizabeth and her supporters were exiled from court. Ferdinand was not prepared to rule, though. He had been kept away from any sort of political events, so he pretty much had no idea how anything worked. Barbara, on the other hand, was a lot savvier. He started to defer to her, and this has led to some conclusions that, like his father, he had married a controlling woman and then opted to just let her take over. 
But Elizabeth's moves had always seemed to be motivated by her own desire for power, but Barbara seemed to really want to foster diplomacy and do what was best for the country. One thing that often comes up in discussions of this transition of power is the phrase, it's rather Barbara who succeeds Elizabeth than Ferdinand succeeding Philip, which is apparently a statement that the French ambassador to Spain made at the time. And Barbara, who was also kind of shy like her husband, managed to overcome that part of herself to rise to the occasion and help Ferdinand in any way possible. And Ferdinand was very much in line with Barbara when it came to matters of regency. So even though he was deferring to her, they were very like-minded. So it was kind of like he was letting her do a little more lifting. Uh, And his trust in her and in his ministers turned out to be very, very well-founded. The country's debt turned around, and Spain was able to stand in a neutral position between France and Britain who were forever at odds and trying to lure Spain into their conflict. Ferdinand was, because of the country's improved fortunes, able to make some magnanimous decisions at times. He earned the trust of the people this way. During particularly difficult times of strife, he would suspend taxation so that the population could recover. He also gave generously to charities. And through all of it, Barbara was often consulted before the king when the ministers had matters to discuss. And much of the work that was done during Ferdinand VI's reign, particularly in the 1740s, was made possible through the work of the Marquis of Ensenada, who we mentioned earlier. And the king had inherited him as prime minister from the period of his father's reign. Ensenada was an important part of the growth of Spain's economy under Ferdinand, and he stayed in his position for quite a number of years until a disagreement with Queen Barbara and a court scandal led to his dismissal in 1754. That is also a whole other story. Uh, But during his time, Ensenada restructured the banking system by establishing a system that kept currency exchanges in the royal treasury, and he helped funnel more funds to the Royal Navy for both expansion and fortification of the existing fleet. Ferdinand and Barbara continued to patronize the arts and their roles as the leaders of Spain. And while Ensenada was instrumental to some of these efforts, it was a cause near and dear to both the monarchs as well. Under their reign, the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in Madrid was formally founded, although the seeds of that organization were planted during the reign of Philip V. And they both continued to patronize the singer Farinelli, who had been popular in Philip V's court as well. Farinelli would often travel down the river on a boat with the royal couple, singing as Barbara played along on her harpsichord. After a fire in the Summer Palace in 1748, Ferdinand made sure that the plans for the rebuild included a space where Farinelli and other opera singers could perform. But even as the royal couple found ways to settle into and seemingly even enjoy their lives as king and queen— Both of them did struggle with their mental health, and as they aged, their issues manifested more and more severely. Ferdinand continued to have very wide mood swings and sometimes just paralyzing self-doubt, and Barbara seemed consumed by anxiety. We're going to get into the ways that the failing mental health of both Barbara and Ferdinand played out and how it impacted their lives in just a moment. But first, we will take a quick breather and have a little sponsor break. So we mentioned right before the break that both Barbara and Ferdinand dealt with a lot of uh, mental health issues. And and one of those ways that it manifested was that they were constantly petrified, each of them, that they might die suddenly. 
And in Barbara's case, she had put on a great deal of weight as she aged, which made movement a little more tricky, and her asthma had gotten progressively worse, and her anxiety about dying deepened as both of these things happened. And she also became completely terrified that Ferdinand would die first, and that in the aftermath, she would be left destitute. To try to prepare for that eventuality, Barbara amassed a lot of wealth, so much that she didn't need to worry about ever losing her fortune, but she still did. Picturing herself as an impoverished widow, she decided to have a convent built so that she'd have a place to live if this greatest fear of hers did come to pass. This convent was called Silesis Realis, and it was designed by René Carlier, who was a French architect. It also served as a girls' school. It still exists in Madrid, although it went from being a convent to being the Palace of Justice in 1870, and then it became the Church of Santa Barbara in 1891. It's quite pretty based on pictures. I have not been there in person. Uh, Barbara, as it turned out, though, did not have to prepare for widowhood. In the fall of 1757, her health took a really severe downturn. She had a chronic cough already, but it just got worse and worse and never improved. And over the next year... She really just died a slow and painful death. She became bedridden, and she wasted away, and she struggled to breathe due to her asthma's progression. And the king stayed with her at all times until she died on August 27, 1758. She was buried in the chapel of that convent that she founded. Barbara left everything to her brother, Joseph I of Portugal, and this was something of a shock to the Spanish public because it was a much larger fortune than anyone had anticipated, and she was sending all that prosperity out of the country. Yeah, Barbara had been a fairly beloved queen, and apparently in the reading of her will, like, immediately people kind of turned on her <laughs> uh, because they were not happy with this this series of events. Um for Ferdinand's part, despite having known that the queen was dying during that time, to be frank, he was a mess when she finally passed. His grief was pronounced and prolonged, and at times any suggestion of taking a second wife made him furious. Barbara had been everything to him, his love, his partner, his closest friend, and his most trusted guide and advisor. And life without her was something he was just unable to even contemplate. For the next 12 months, there was just a long series of progressively more troubling behavior from the king. He retreated to a monastery at Villa Viciosa. He essentially refused to fulfill his duties as monarch any longer. He vacillated between silent stillness and a kind of manic rage, and he just refused to be comforted, even when his favorite singer, Farinelli, came to sing to him. That was something that had often calmed him in even his worst episodes of mania before. Yeah, allegedly when Farinelli arrived and started singing, the king just clapped his hands over his ears and was like, I don't want any of this. Um, Ferdinand's behavior was, of course, very, very troubling, and it only got worse. He attempted suicide first with a pair of scissors and then by trying to hang himself in the monastery's draperies. Alternately, he became so manic and afraid of dying that he would refuse to lie down. Sometimes he would walk around allegedly for like, 10 and 11 days at a time. He was completely certain that if he were to lie down, he would never get up again. He stopped dressing. He stopped eating everything but soup at first, and then he started denying any food at all. Naturally, this was not a helpful way to live. Uh, he wasted away, and he died on August 10th, 1759, at the age of 46. That was just a little less than a year after Barbara died. And he, too, was buried in the convent chapel with her. There's a passage in the 1910 edition of Encyclopedia Britannica that reads, quote, The memoirs of the Count of Ferdinand Nunez give a shocking picture of his deathbed. So out of curiosity, Holly tried to look into that. What did you find there, Holly? 
Well, first of all, it's in Spanish, which I do not read. Um, I ran it through Google Translate, and it did indeed offer up some fairly horrific imagery of a man who very clearly had lost all connection to any sense of royal propriety, of course, but also just normal life. But I also do not trust that translation enough to quote it. It was pretty clunky uh, in some places because it was written in kind of an old-school style. It is also a little bit rambly in its structure. It kind of jumps from talking about one person to another without a lot of warning involved. So sometimes the pronouns, he's still using pronouns even though he's actually referencing like a different royal. Uh, It can be a little bit hard to follow. And I will put the link to the Spanish language one in the show notes, which is online and digitized, But uh, if anybody wants to look at it themselves. But just know that at the end, Ferdinand was in a really, really bad state, both mentally and physically. Nothing you would want for even your worst enemy. Ferdinand and Barbara had had a pretty passionate marriage, but they never had children. So when Ferdinand died, Elizabeth Farnese's wishes came true. Her eldest son from her marriage to Philip V, which was Charles III, took the throne. This was the wish of King Ferdinand, who had left Madrid for his self-imposed exile uh, at the monastery in December of 1758. Just before leaving, he had named Charles III as his heir presumptive. And what's truly unique to me about the reign of Ferdinand and Barbara is not that they had mental health issues or that despite being an arranged marriage uh, that other people did not understand, they fell in love and were so deeply devoted to one another. Um, It is, in fact, the surprising thing to me is, in fact, that they were both particularly Ferdinand incredibly earnest. They really wanted to do their best and be good rulers. And they were also kind of almost naively trusting sometimes of their advisors. And they could have really been exploited terribly and things could have gone very badly. But for the most part, during Ferdinand's time on the throne, Spain was prosperous and recovered from a lot of problems and avoided any dramatic political entanglements. Uh, to me, that's what's surprising, uh, even though a lot of other parts of their their life and their rule is sensationalized. That's kind of what I tend to come away with, thinking, yes, but they really, really did want to do their best job. <laughs> and in many ways, they did, uh, which is sort of a happy ending to a fairly tragic story. I'm going in a way different direction on listener mail today. Uh, okay. <laughs> we're going to talk about some uh, evolutionary biology. Uh, this is a reference back to our episode on Franz Nopcha. It, it comes from our listener, Adrian. She writes, hi, Holly and Tracy. Thank you so much for your work on the podcast. I listen to it every day during my commute, lab work, and while grading assignments. I'm a PhD candidate studying geology and evolutionary biology, a.k.a. paleontology, and the podcast helps get through those slower parts of my day. I recently listened to your episode on Baron Franz Nopcha. Not only do I love learning about the history of paleontologists that came before me, this episode in particular caught my attention due to his work involving island animals. I am studying the evolutionary history of some island lizards for my dissertation. It is true that some, and maybe most, question mark cases, uh, island ecosystems support dwarfed animals. However, in some cases, there is island gigantism. I just read a paper about an island that supports giant iguanas. It is thought that in the case of gigantism, the presence of marine birds and their guano can fertilize the plant life and boost the nutritional value of those plants, which trickles up the food chain. A fun historical tidbit, part of the push for colonization of Pacific Islands was to gain control of islands that had large deposits of guano. Up until the advent of the Haber-Bosch process, a major source of fertilizer was bird guano. Unfortunately, the mining of guano was often very disruptive to the ecosystem and island ecosystem 
ecosystems are often viewed as particularly fragile. In good news, the conservation and restoration of these bird-rich islands is being pushed by biologists. Adrian, thank you so much for sharing your scientific knowledge with us. Uh, yeah, I had not thought about gigantism. If uh, anybody needed a refresher, there is a lot of debate during Baron Franz Nopcha's time about uh, some of the discoveries he was making and a lot of theorizing about why animals were smaller, including that he was only ever finding uh, immature animals. <laughs> so so uh, if you would like to write to us and share your expertise, you can do that at historypodcast.housedofworks.com. You can also find us pretty much everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And mistinhistory.com is our website URL. You can come there and check out every episode of the show that has ever existed, including those that came well before Tracy and I were ever involved. Uh, if you would like to subscribe to the podcast, we would like you to do that as well. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 